This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Ethan Brown. Ethan, do you want to say hello? Hi, everyone. Uh, Now, can you give us just a brief introduction to who you are? Sure. Uh, right now, I'm the technology director at a small software company. Uh, we're actually headquartered in California, but I'm in Portland, Oregon. And we write software to facilitate um, a... <laughs> we, we sort of have a marketing problem, and it's very hard to explain what we do. But what my company as a whole does is help large, usually public organizations uh, make projects more effective. So the kind of work we do is rehabilitations of bridges and uh, embassy retrofits and large construction pro- projects and highway retrofits. And so there's a lot There's a lot that goes into a lot of engineering, a lot of civil planning, a lot of government work and getting people to sort of come together and you know, get the most value out of the project, make sure the projects go smoothly is really difficult. And there's a methodology called value engineering that we use to help these public, uh, usually public agencies improve value on their projects. And so the engineering team is writing software that helps facilitate that whole process. So I know that's, that's very nebulous, you know, to people who not, not in, in, uh, pub, in, in the public sector, it's, it's kind of hard to describe what we do. So I've been working on the elevator pitch. It's not done yet, as you can tell. Well, that's fine. I mean, it's interesting to see how software is being used, especially in areas like, you know, how, how do we manage projects on bridges and stuff? But, uh, sure. you know, at the same time, you know, we're here to talk about the software and not necessarily about the application. So, absolutely. Anyway, we ran across this article, and this is something I get asked about a fair bit. Now, this was written back at the beginning of the year, but I, I think it's still relevant, and I'm curious to dive into what you're looking at as we're kind of coming around mid-year and starting to look at, okay, what do we have to know for 2019? You wrote this article, JavaScript 2018, things you need to know and a few you can skip. Or I guess you didn't write it, but you were the... Yeah, I was interviewed. The behind it. I, yeah. I was interviewed by it. Uh, and it was based on a talk I gave at Node Interactive last year. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll, I'll start off by saying what's really funny to me about doing this podcast now is how quickly things change. One of the things that I originally had talked about that, you know, I, I didn't think was something that people needed to know right now is symbols in JavaScript. Because, you know, I had, I had played around with using them in some projects uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And I just had a lot of problems with serialization and bundling and library incompatibilities. And I thought to myself, well, you know, for the for the benefit you get, I don't think that the troubles are worth it. So I was saying, you know, don't think about symbols now. And then just a couple of months ago, a uh, open source project that we rely on for our software called AutoMerge 
someone submitted a PR and said, hey, you know, I think symbols would really is really what we should be using here. And so I piped up and I said, hey, you know, I, you know I've had all kinds of problems integrating symbols into other projects. And they said, what are you crazy? Symbols work just fine. And so already I'm, I'm seeing, you know, in, the, in such a short amount of time, things that I was sort of derating uh, being quite useful these days. Right. So I totally know what symbols are. But there may be people that don't. So maybe for them, not for me, but for them, you could. No, I'm just kidding. I really actually would love it. <laughs> the <laughs> only ones I've used are in Ruby. So are they like comparable to that? Uh, you know, it's been so long since I've done Ruby. I could not even comment on that. But I'll tell you what they okay. are. And then, and then you can tell me. Uh, symbols are basically uh, immutable uh, lexical symbols. So, you know, uh, you might use them in place of enums or in place of consts and they're, uh, the, the, the compiler enforces their uniqueness within a, a single JavaScript run runtime environment. So, uh, you know, like let, let's say you're building a form and you have gender on us, you have male, female, and other, and you might create a symbol for, gender male, gender female, gender other, and the language will enforce that you're using, uh, you know, that that symbol doesn't take on another value as opposed to saying using a string constant. That's pretty close. And that's that's one example of how they're used in Ruby as well. Yep. It has also been forever since I've done Ruby, so I had to Google that really quickly. <laughs> I haven't used them in JavaScript yet. I knew that they were coming, but... Um, Practically speaking, can you give it like a practical example of when you've used them recently? So I, I can talk uh, specifically about the uh, when they were used in the auto merge project. And I'm, I'm not sure that has been merged into master yet. So I'm not sure it's available in mainline auto merge. Uh, but I'll give you a quick background on auto merge too, because I think this is a great project. And we're actually basing most of our application architecture on it. So I want to give a little shout out to those guys. Uh, Martin Klepperman, um, he's in the UK, and this comes out of uh, some graduate research work he did on conflict-free, uh, shoot, now I'm going to forget the acronym, CRDT, conflict-free resolution data types. And basically, it's about merging data from multiple sources in a consistent and coherent way. So think about Google Docs, for example, you have a bunch of people editing it at the same time, and how do you how do you keep those changes consistent? And so, CRDTs is a, is a great way to manage that, and Auto Merge is a JavaScript library to handle CRDTs. Uh, so, I'm long talking about that, and I'm thinking in my mind diamonds, like conflict free diamonds and conflict diamonds. <laughs> right, right. <yeah. laughs> I was like, wait, what? Right. How is this? <laughs> No, this, this is on uh, this is on the um, the data conflict side, not the human conflict side. Thank, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> um, so, anyway, uh, back back to the the subject at hand: symbols um, under the hood. Auto merge uses uh, immutable.js to enforce immutability because a, a big principle of CRDTs is the at, at the end of the day you get an immutable object. Uh, otherwise, it's really difficult to to uh, synchronized changes. So, um, you know, wh what you get is an object with a bunch of properties and depending on how you're using it, for example, if you're trying to serialize it, you might iterate over the properties and try to write it to a database or something like that. And 
when the when the project first started, most of the sort of control variables were prefixed with an underscore. So there was like a underscore object ID and under, underscore conflict list. And one of the rules of the library was that you can't use properties that start with an underscore, which is kind of a hassle. A lot of people use properties that start with an under, underscore to sort of locally indicate, you know, reserved, uh, reserved property names. So this was sort of a point of contention with a lot of people who use the library and I was one of them. And so my first take on it was, well, let's make those properties immutable so that, you know, when we iterate over it or we try to serialize it, we, we don't, you know, get those properties that are really part of the auto merge implementation into our data stores where it's not relevant. Um, and so that happened. And then this other person, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. I'd have to go and look up. He came along and he said, hey, you know what we should actually do is we should be using symbols for this. And so here's another interesting aspect of symbols in JavaScript. In an object, you know, as we know, the, the keys to properties in an object has to be strings. But with the introduction of, of symbols, they can be strings or symbols. So unlike, say, a map, you know, the, the map and uh, weak map objects that were introduced in ES 2016, where you can have any data type as the key. Traditional JavaScript objects, you know, regular objects, we've only been able to use strings, but now we can use symbols. And the really interesting thing about that is you can effectively implement data hiding. So if you have a symbol and you set a property in an object using that symbol, and you have a client that's using that object and they don't have access to your symbol, because of the unique nature of symbols, they effectively have no way of accessing that property. So, you know, <laughs> in a weird sort of way, we're getting back to, you know, some of the data hiding that object-oriented programming in, you know, more traditional OOP languages ha has had available forever in sort of a, you know, very typical JavaScript way. Um, any rate, long story short, AutoMerge said, hey, that'd be a great idea. That way we can take all of these you know, sort of internal bookkeeping properties that we're using in our objects and hide them and make it so the client can't see them by not exposing the symbols. And it turned out to work great. So that's a fantastic use. And before I move on, I'll also point out that this is also how JavaScript uh, itself as a language handles enumeration. So innumerable properties have a generator that I can't remember the exact name, but basically they have a symbol property that specifies what the, the generator is. So they're sort of eating their own dog food in the symbol property department. Cool. Thanks for that example. Sure thing. Now, I kind of want to dive into, you know, first of all, he, you put out a list, you know, this is what you should know or should learn in 2018. I mean, wh where does this come from? Is this just what people are talking about where you hear them? Or... <laughs> Well, you know, I'll I'll admit to you know obvious myopia. Uh, you know, I I manage a team of engineers and I'm working on JavaScript projects. So a part of it is you know this is what we're doing. And I realize that's that's a local example, but I try to you know I, I read a lot. I read a lot of blogs. I try to keep up with podcasts and I listen to what people are using or not using. So you know I, I'm not going to pretend I'm all-knowing, obviously, but um, I, I do like 
I do hope that I'm staying on top of what I hear people talking about in the JavaScript ecosystem. And my involvement in, in sort of the JavaScript community waxes and wanes depending on how busy I get at work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it depending on, on when you ask me, I might have my finger on the pulse of JavaScript and I might not. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, most of these are things that people are at least talking about. So, yeah, let, let's just jump in on some of these. One sure. of one that I found slightly surprising. I mean, people are talking about WebAssembly, but I'm not aware of anyone like really deeply using WebAssembly. Yeah, and we talked about this before a couple episodes back, and it, I thought kind of our takeaway was like the everyday developer probably wouldn't use it. So I was curious to see that being on the list. Why? That's a great question, and I don't know that I have a great answer for that. The reason I originally put that on the list and I may have been bitten by the hype bug, is I just heard so, <laughs> many, you know, I heard so many people talking about it, and they're like, oh my God, WebAssembly is going to you know, change the way we write software on the web. And I think looking back, what I was, what I was really hearing is sort of a, the echoes of the JavaScript haters, because you know, JavaScript has just gone under, through such a, a renaissance. You know, it used to be the language everyone loved to hate on, mostly before ES6. And then, you know, along with ES6 and Node and React, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of got got on board and said, hey, actually, JavaScript's a pretty a neat language. I really like it. Uh, but there's still a lot of people, I think, who are, are a little mm-hmm. poisoned by that. And so I think why people were excited about WebAssembly or is they were thinking, you know, oh my God, I can, you know, program C++ and have it compile JavaScript or, you know, Ruby or, you know, whatever. Um, and you're right. I don't, I don't know that, uh, I, I think, I think the excitement has sort of died down. I haven't heard people talking uh, too much about it lately. So if I were writing that, uh, if I were telling that story today, I would not put that on the list. Would you put uh, blockchain on there just out of curiosity? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I know, right? Blockchain and AI. Come on. Well, uh, when speaking of WebAssembly specifically, I think it's one of those topics you absolutely should be aware of because, uh, as was, I, I, I don't know, like Chuck was saying, I don't know that there's much where your typical website web application programmer is going to leverage WebAssembly directly. But it's a very interesting tool. And I think that we'll be seeing more and more tools taking advantage of WebAssembly in the future. It's very promising, but right now it's just leveraged very, very little. And so that's browser support. So that's other issues. But I think in the future, we're going to see WebAssembly. I think it's going to be aware of. Uh, I just can't imagine something um, functional I would do with it. So yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. And, you know, like I said, I, I haven't looked at it or played with it since I gave that talk. So um. that makes me think of something else with the exclusion, obviously, of blockchain. Would you if you wrote this today, would you put machine learning on there? Yes and no. Maybe, I guess, is the answer. And, and, and let me d- dive into that explanation a little bit. So to me, me, machine learning is not a particular language feature. It's more of a, uh, you know, an algorithm or a set of principles to solve certain types of problems. And I think it is more relevant to JavaScript now because I, I'm sure you all have heard that TensorFlow was recently uh, released uh, for JavaScript, right. uh, or at least a client API. So now I think, you know, 
the, the, the 800 pound machine learning gorilla is now a lot easier to use in JavaScript. And so I think we are going to see an acceleration of people doing AI and machine learning uh, using JavaScript as, as at least as the client interface. You know, we, we all know JavaScript is, you know, probably not the most appropriate language if you want to do CPU bound stuff. So, you know, you probably want to ship that actual computation work off to a more appropriate core or server or service. Right. But the, act, the actual interface, I, I think JavaScript can be a fantastic language for doing that in. Right. Right. Yeah. Agreed. It'll definitely be interesting to see where it goes. One other thing, just back to WebAssembly, is I don't think you were wrong. I think you were early. And the reason that I think that is because, you know, again, going back to either the JavaScript haters or just the future of JavaScript, WebAssembly isn't just designed to be a common compiler target for JavaScript and for other languages. It's also designed to be highly optimized when the browsers do implement it. And so it's not just going to be then this thing out there that, oh, now my Ruby or C, C++ <laughs> or C Sharp or whatever compiles to it, and I can finally write real programming, quote unquote, onto the web, right? It's also going to be my JavaScript, I'm writing my JavaScript, and I'm going to run it through this compiler that compiles it to WebAssembly, and it's going to be highly performant because both the browser and the compiler are optimized to give me the best throughput on the stuff that I wrote. Right. Well said, and I, I didn't really highlight that aspect of it. I guess part of why that feels a little less re less relevant to me personally is when I think about that, I think about things like games, and I'm not really in the in the game space. Uh, you know, most of the most of the work that I do these days, there's definitely some algorithmic complexity and there's some business rule complexity, but we're hardly taxing the computational capabilities of the devices we're running on. So. Uh, I'm sure the, the performance benefits are going to be really relevant to some people, but not to me so much personally. I just know I need to buy a bigger video card so I can do some more Bitcoin mining. <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, I, I would beg to differ a little bit on that point as well. It depends on how nice your cell phone is. Sure. 100% uh, agreed. So, but but it, is, it is interesting, especially in the direction we're heading. But yeah, I mean, the next two that you had on here, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, if if you're not up on these at this point, you're almost falling behind. And that was functional programming and immutability, which sort of have gone hand in hand, as well as the one way data binding, which we see a lot in kind of the reactive frameworks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on those two. Uh, can we start with just functional programming and, and then we can move on to immutability afterwards? Sure. So. I have a, a lot of thoughts on functional programming and sometimes they're a little, a little mixed. You know, I, I was exposed to functional programming uh, in the late nineties when I was doing my computer science undergraduate and uh, you know, that, that had been around for 20, 30 years by then. So, you know, these ideas are, are not new. It's interesting to me that they're finally taking purchase and becoming a little vogue. And I really do credit JavaScript with, bringing functional programming techniques to the masses. Certainly, it's not the first language to be multi-paradigm or allow you to program in functional language, but it's the first language that I really see the masses sort of cottoning onto it and the hipsters being like, oh, yeah, functional programming, that's where it's at, you know. Um, Ten years ago, you, you didn't see that. Um, it was mostly relegated to sort of niche languages and academia. Um, so I, I, I think that's... That's great for 
the programming community in general, you know, um, and I, I guess I would liken it to the way that uh, Ruby on Rails really changed the way we do web development with, you know, really strong tooling. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a big Ruby person. It was never really my favorite language, but I can absolutely um, appreciate what it did for the discipline of web programming. And I see a similar thing happening with JavaScript introducing functional programming to a, a brand new generation of programmers. Now, that said, I do think that JavaScript is something of a gateway drug and that it is multi-paradigm. And in a lot of ways, it especially if you're a little older like I am, it is hard to get out of the imperative mindset because in, in a lot of ways, it is very natural. You think, you know, you're, you're writing a program to do something. We sort of decompose things into steps and it is a shift in thinking to instead decompose them into essentially function call stacks. And I do like that, that, that you can do it both ways. And I guess I've been wondering lately if the, the optimal language or approach or discipline, if you will, is a hybrid of functional and imperative, but using each where they most make sense instead of like wholesale going to a language like Elm, which don't get me wrong, I love Elm. Uh, you know, if, if I could switch everything I do to Elm, I probably would. But I think, you know, what if you... What I if think you, that's a common uh, feeling with a lot of people <laughs> that dabble with Elm. It's yeah. like, this is so awesome, but I can't use it uh, the way that it is because it can only be pieces and it doesn't work well as a piece. I need it to be everything. But if I could do everything that I want to do with Elm, I would love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I would agree with what you're saying because I think any time that you can kind of understand the trade-offs of something and use the right tool for the job at the time, that's when you're going to get the most value. Yeah, I agree with that. But can I? Uh, I'd like to uh, throw out a little uh, counter argument here, just to we just to try to uh, stir the pot a little. Stir the pot a little. Yeah, just a little <laughs> we don't have an AJ on, so we can't really get this pot stirred. <laughs> Let's take functional programming now. I'm just going to take the side of somebody who doesn't like functional programming, right? And I'm going to use an example. Go uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use an example here. Data structures and algorithms are constantly being touted as, hey, these are the kinds of things you should learn. You go get a CS degree, you learn this stuff. So people that don't get a classic CS degree, if you do a different degree or you don't get a degree, hey, this is something you should definitely learn. Uh, I did not get a degree. I programmed for like... 15-ish plus years before I finally decided to sit down and learn data structures and algorithms. And in that time, I maybe could have leveraged that knowledge three, four, five times in that 15 years. And when I say times, I mean like literally like for an hour or two, right, in that time frame. And then I learned them. I spent like a ton of time learning them and 300, 400 hours studying data structures and algorithms. And then five years, seven years down the road, I think I've used them about twice, Right, that like the specific knowledge, the other stuff that you just kind of like, hey, this is slower than this and that sort of thing. But I mean, really like learning data structures and algorithms. So I've heard some similar things on functional programming that it's like, hey, everybody that does, gets into it says it's great, but all the people who don't get into it or who dabble in it and just find it to be annoying comes about thinking, you know, what? it's just more obscure syntax. And boy, well, the, the last thing 